Thank you for listening to this message from Waynesboro Free Methodist Church. Our mission is to multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. We hope this message helps you along your journey. I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 1 because today I want to set up this series in, in, in a way that the Lord has laid on my heart uh, Guys, we've been talking about this for a while. We've been announcing this series for a while and asking you to invite your friends. So if you came this Sunday for your first time and you're interested in learning more about Jesus, man, today's the right day to do it. Um, And I apologize if you're like, hey, I'm ready to study John and now we're in Hebrews. Wait a minute. So uh, let me explain uh, what's going on today. I'm setting up this series uh, and and, and I want to do it in a way that's helpful. Um, Guys, this is going to be our first book study together. Uh, we have not done a study, or, or I've not preached through a whole book uh, here before, and I actually prefer that. So that's why I'm really excited. It's a big deal, but today, I want to be answering the question of why. Why ought we be in this series? Why, why studying the person of Jesus? What are the motives behind it? Why are we going to devote so much time, so many weeks, to looking at the gospel of John and looking at the character of Jesus, the nature of Jesus, especially in our context today. Guys, we need to know this answer because when we're 20 weeks down the road and we're saying, turn again to Gospel of John, you need to know why we're still doing it so you can still be engaged with it, okay? So that's what today really is going to be about, setting this up. And, and today we're really gonna be answering two questions. The first question is, what's true about Jesus? And the second is, what's true about us? Now, I'm not saying this is the whole truth about Jesus and this is the whole truth about us, but what's a truth about Jesus and what's a truth about us? So if you'd like to take notes, you can kind of break it down into those two sections. But these two things together are going to explain why it's so important for us to be studying the person of Jesus Christ and looking at him through the lens of the Gospel of John. So the first part. What's true about Jesus? What's something that's true about Jesus? Well, we're going to learn something true about Jesus in Hebrews chapter 1, which is why I'm asking you to turn there today. So Hebrews is a, uh, a book of the Bible. The author is kind of debated. They don't really know who it is, but it is in the canon of Scripture, and it is the word of the Lord. And so uh, let me start off with just chapter 1, verse 1, and we're only going to read four verses. I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. So this is, this is God's word. Long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him, the son. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So he became superior to the angels just as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so we see the book of Hebrews start off with something. We see it starts off where it talks about how God used to communicate to his people. Through, through who? Through what? What were they called? What does it say? They were called 
prophets, right? He used to communicate to our ancestors, to the people of Israel, through prophets, individuals who heard from the Lord and then would convey what the Lord has said. But he, he did an upgrade on the communications lines, right? He sent a, sent a better, more improved version, right? He, sent a, 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 he established new communications lines between heaven and earth. And, and what did he do? Who did he send? His son. He sent the son, now, so far, we only have heard about the Son, and we're kind of, we don't know his name yet in Hebrews, so are we to just assume that it's Jesus? No, if you look down in Hebrews 2, it's talking about Jesus. When you look over to Hebrews 4, verse 14, the author of Hebrews says that Jesus is the Son of God, okay? So, so we're, we're talking about Jesus here in Hebrews chapter 1. It's all about Jesus, which means that if God used to talk through prophets, but then sent his son Jesus to communicate to us. Then therefore Jesus is distinct from the prophets. So there's a common belief out in the world today. Some people say that Jesus was a prophet, right? There are some religions that actually believe that much about Jesus. Others just say he was a good teacher, right? And, and we wouldn't disagree with those things, right? He was a prophet, he was a priest, and he was a king. We believe that he was a great teacher. He was a, uh, the, the rabbi of all rabbis, was he not? But but we know he's much more than that. So, so what we see here is that there's a distinction about this son. There's something different about him. I mean, notice what he says about this son. He says that God's appointed this person to be the heir of all things. He's going to inherit the nations. Right? It also says that, that God made the universe through this son. So, so do you think this is just a typical ordinary son? Do you think this is like my son Isaac? No, no, this is, this is nothing, there's nothing standard about this son. This is something totally different, something distinct. And then we get into verse three. Just check out that first phrase right there. The son is the radiance of God's glory. The son is the radiance of God's glory. In other words, Jesus is God's glory shining. Uh, some of your texts might say the effulgence, uh, the efflux. He's emitting, he's putting off. Let's meditate on that minute. Let's meditate on the concept of God's glory. Something that we should be a little bit familiar with, although if our memories are a little bit hazy, we might not be able to remember it too well. Guys, uh, 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 about two years ago, a little less than two years ago, we were in a series called what? A Glimpse of glory, right? And, and I'm not expecting you guys to remember any of that, but, but it's, we, we looked at Moses' encounter with the glory of God, right? He asked God, show me your glory, and God says, here's what I'll show you, which means we can assume that if it's a yes answer, then what God shows him and what God does, that experience can help us understand what God's glory is. Now, with that, we defined God's glory. We got an understanding a little bit of what God's glory is. I'm not expecting any of you to remember this, but who remembers how we defined God's glory. The beautiful perfections. I'm, I just gave it to you. Somebody read it. Of God's. Hey, you remember. <laughs> Great job. I love it. The beautiful perfections of God's sovereign character. That's God's glory. In other words, it's how infinite, how attractive, how beautiful, how perfect, how excellent, how unchanging. God's love and his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness and his patience and his faithfulness and his righteousness and his holiness, all that he is and more, how perfect and beautiful and unchanging he really is. 
In other words, there's a, an incredible magnificence to our God that just doesn't compare. Speaking of which, there's just one thing that I need to, 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 to take note of as we head into what I'm about to illustrate. Guys, um, one of the problems that we have is that we take created things to try to compare them to the creator, to try to understand the creator. And you know that just doesn't work, right? <laughs> Eventually it falls apart. So like trying to use a three-leaf clover to describe the Trinity just doesn't work. Or an egg, right? The Lord is the shell and the spirit is the egg, whatever. Like the yolk and the, you know, the whites, whatever. No, come on, right? Don't, don't equate my God to an egg, okay? <laughs> Let's not use that. But sometimes it does help us at least understand some things. So what I'm about to do is give you an illustration that will fall short, but it might help a little bit. So for example, uh, we currently... Uh, are enjoying a beautiful day full of what out there? Sunlight, right? We've got a sun up in our sky, in our solar system. That's, a, that's the closest star that we get to enjoy and it gives us our, what two things that we really need, what? Light and heat. It gives us light and heat. So in that sense, we see the sun. We can see it up in the sky. You don't look too long, right? We can see it up in the sky and we can feel it. We see its light, we feel its heat. We're experiencing the sun. But are we experiencing the sun <laughs> in another sense? No. Uh, if, if we were to fully experience the sun, we would no longer exist. It would consume us. We're experiencing what the sun is what? Radiating. We're experiencing what it's emitting. We're experiencing its effulgence. And there's a huge distinction between what the sun radiates and what's reflected. Because we have another star in our sky. It's not a star. What is it? It's a, it's a moon that does what to the sun's light? It reflects it. So in the day, we have the sun and we're enjoying the direct radiation of it, what it radiates. In the moon, in the nighttime, it is reflecting the sun. So what we're talking about here is not a passive reflection. The moon doesn't put off any of its own light. It doesn't create any of its own light. It just reflects it. But no, that's, that's, that's what this text is trying to clarify, that it's not just Jesus simply reflecting the glory of God as if he's a moon. No, he is the radiating heat and light of God's glory. Jesus is God's glory shining. So, uh, uh, several centuries ago at a, at a council of Nicaea uh, in response to the culture around them and, and some things happening in the church Christians got together and they said regarding the son's relationship to the father that Jesus is light of light true God of true God light of light he is the radiating glory of God light of light and so we encounter God, we experience God, we see and feel God's absolute, full, blinding, consuming, powerful, beautiful glory, fully shining in the person of Jesus and nothing less. In other words, Jesus isn't just some part. He's not just some kind of star. He's not a distinct star so to speak. He's not just a part of the sun. No, not an iota of essential difference can be said to divide the Father from the Son. In fact, the only way 
for the Father's glory to shine fully in the person of the Son is if they are homoousius. You want to say that word with me? Or you just want to skip it? Hey, you did it! Nice! It means identical in essence. Homoousius. Well, how odd. It's exactly what the author of Hebrews says next. Look at it. He says, not only is the Son the radiance of God's glory, with all that that means, he's also what? The exact expression of his nature. The exact expression. Some of your... um, Translations might say the exact imprint of his nature. Others might say the exact representation of his nature or being. The word nature here, listen, is hypostasis. Hypostasis, it means substance. It means essence. It means reality. Think of individual existence. You have an individual existence, all right? It's from this word that we get the theological concept of a hypostatic union. I'm not going to go into it, but basically it's just a reference to how Jesus was fully man and fully God. There was a perfect union in their essence between the two. There wasn't a distinction. And this text is proof of that. This text is used to explain that. Jesus is the exact expression Or he's the exact representation or imprint of God's essence, of his existence, of his nature, of his being. Now the words words in your text, exact expression or exact representation, is actually one Greek word. I'm going to say it for you and see if it sounds like one you know. Character. What does that sound like? Character. Not karate. Character. Well done. Character. The history behind this word is this. This word was actually used not in reference to nature of a person per se. It was actually used in reference to an engraving tool. Basically like a stamp. So, for example, uh, you would have a coin, right? And, and, and that coin would would receive the character. It would be stamped upon. And, 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 and the image that was on the bottom of that stamp is now on the coin, right? It etched an image onto a coin. And, and this is what um, one commentator, F.F. F. Bruce, said about this. He said, just as the image and superscription on a coin exactly corresponds to the device on the die, so the Son of God bears the very stamp of God's nature, of his essence, of his existence. Guys, there isn't a distortion. There isn't an imperfection or a flaw. Jesus is the character. He is the perfect image of God. And he's, he's not just given to us functionally to serve as that. Like, he, like he, that's the only reason why he came. No, no, no. It's ontological, which, which means it's his existence. Try it yourself. It's not fun. It's his existence. It's his nature. Ontologically. So when you and I see Jesus, we are seeing the full, perfect image of God. That's what Colossians 1.13 says. It's what Paul says in that hymn. 
that poem he writes, he says, the son Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In other words, you and I, praise the Lord for this, we ain't gotta go climb some mountain somewhere to see God's glory like Moses did, right? We also don't have to make some journey over to Jerusalem to some temple there where God's presence dwells. No, 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 where do we have to go to see God? Jesus. We go to Jesus. We need to go to Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, and you and I will experience the glory of God radiating out into the world. We're going to experience God's nature perfectly characterized, precisely expressed in Jesus alone. So this is what's true about Jesus. This is what's true about him. What God is, the Son is, right? Jesus and God share the imprint of being. They share the same image. So that's part one of why we're in the Gospel of John. Why why would we be studying through uh, through the Gospel of John about the person of Jesus? What's true about him then? It's because he's the image of God. My goodness. He's the very image of God. And and 2 Corinthians says that if we behold his glory, we will be transformed by it. So why not? Let's look at our Jesus and be changed. That's one truth. What's true about Jesus? Jesus is the image of God. Jesus is the precise expression of God. So we're going to go look at the fullest, the exact expression of God's glory and nature in the person of Jesus. And we're going to do it by looking through the lens of the Gospel of John. That's part one. That's, that's one reason why we're here. is because Jesus is the image of God. That's why we're going to go through the Gospel of John. What's the second truth that we're needing to talk about? What's true about us? What's true about us? Uh, Guys, I love you. What I'm about to say is true about us, and we probably don't know it, or we know it, and we don't like it. Here's what's true about us. Here's a problem or a, a weakness that we have. We're prone to distorting images. We're prone to twisting and distorting images. So if Jesus is the image of God and we have a problem with distorting images, then we need to talk about this. Now, when I say that we're prone to distorting images, I'm not talking about like a Pablo Picasso painting, although if you look at it long enough, it gets wacky, right? I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is how easy it is for you and I to distort other people's images or our own image, right? So Jesus, the uncreated creator, exists as the character. He's the exact expression of God's nature of his existence. And yet here's what's crazy. When God created mankind, what did he do? He said, let us make man in our image. After our likeness. So you and I are image bearers as well. Not to the preciseness of Jesus or the exactness of Jesus, but you and I, you and I have a likeness to God. There's something about us that's like God. Not that we are God, but we're something about us that's 
like him. He made us in his image. We are image bearers, which uh, actually gets us the Latin phrase, the imago Dei, right? It's the likeness of God, which then means that every person, when the moment they are conceived, when they come into existence, they bear the image of God, which makes every human being valuable. No matter their story, no matter their brokenness, no matter their past, every human being has an inherent value and worth. No matter what they've done, because man is made like the image of God. And who were, the, who were the first two people to be image bearers? Adam and Eve, right? That's how the story starts, right? Adam and Eve. They were made in the image of God and they're bearing the image of God. But then who comes into the scene and messes some stuff up? The snake, the s- Satan in the form of a snake, right? He invites them to eat of the tree that God had forbidden, saying that they will become like God. That's tragic, is it not? That's insanely tragic. You and I both know what? That they were already made like God, right? They were already made to image God in a way. In this moment, Adam and Eve's perception of themselves changed. They distorted their own image. And they distorted the image of God. They thought God had got it wrong. Oh, but you and I know he doesn't do that. They elevated their own image saying, well, we need to take authority of what's right and what's wrong. They ate. So guys, the original sin wasn't necessarily that they ate of the tree. That was just the expression of what was going on inside. And what was going on inside was really a problem with the distorting of images of God's character and his nature and our own. So they ate. They ate and the image of God upon mankind, though it was still there, became marred, right? Sinfulness entered into the bloodline of humanity and and distorting images just became a routine inclination in humanity. I mean, notice how the story goes from here. What happens next in the story of scripture after the fall of mankind? Cain and Abel, right? Cain totally belittles, he diminishes Abel's image and it becomes so distorted so much that Cain's able to kill his own brother. He violates Abel's image with murder. Not only that, but after that, we start seeing distorting images compound and compound and compound. And then God sends a flood to purify the earth and promises he won't do it again. But then the people gather back together and they try to build a massive tower, elevating their own image, exalting themselves, saying, let us make a name for ourselves. When God's already made a name for them. Keep going in the story, what? Abraham betrays the image of his wife by declaring her his sister and letting a king have his way with her. Not only that, but he, he, he totally neglects the image of his wife's servant and sends her off pregnant with his son. Distorting images. Jacob diminishes Esau's image by stealing his birthright and blessing. What happens next? Well, we see a story about Shechem and Dina. Shechem totally uh, denies Dina's image and rapes her. You see, Joseph's brothers totally ignore his image and sell him off into slavery. 
You see, King David abused Bathsheba's image by stealing her from her husband Uriah and then adulterously sleeping with her. And then he tries to cover it up by destroying Uriah's image by indirectly murdering him. You tracking with me? You see how this is going? We can fast forward. Let's fast forward to our day. We got just, just less than a century ago, uh, a, a generation who had to put up with a mass of people who were thinking that a certain ethnic people group were not image bearers and weren't worth living with and decided that it'd be better to exterminate them. They were called Jews, and this was the Holocaust. The Holocaust was an image problem. Abortion violates the image of the unborn. Pornography selfishly abuses the image of another human being made in the image of God. Gossip <laughs> seeks to spoil the image of its victim. Right? Pride wrongly elevates the image of ourselves. Self-hating depression ignores the beauty and the goodness of God's image in us. You, you track with me? Most sin in the world today is an image problem. It's a problem with twisting images of others and of ourselves. Most sin revolves around this. And guys, this can even impact everyday relationships, right? Guys, we can, we can allow one, one experience of another human being to totally characterize that person's image in our perception. Especially if it's a bad experience. Especially if it's a terrible one. You and I can both knowingly and unknowingly carry distorted perceptions of other people and their character, their character, their image. I can't help but think of um, caricatures. I'm saying that a lot, aren't I? I can't help but think of those, right? You know those, those little animations where they exaggerate people's facial features to kind of make fun of them in a way? Right? We, we, we intentionally distort images of them, their, their image in jest, right? We know it's not exactly them, but we can recognize them when we see it. I want to give you an example. Shout out the name if you know who this is. Mr. Bean. You and I both know that that's not his real face. We know there's some exaggerations there, but we know who he is. What about this guy? Who is that? Robert Down Iron Man. <laughs> you don't even know his real name. <laughs> I didn't either. Robert Downing Jr., right? Robert Downing Jr., he's, he's uh, um, yeah, is that really him? No, it's very much a distortion of him, but we can recognize him enough. Guys, these are exaggerated images of their personhood. So while you and I may not actively be drawing out uh, how we perceive other people and their images on pieces of paper, uh, we do surely carry images of other people we carry perceptions of their image and it defines how we relate to them or refuse to relate to them so what's unfortunately true about you and me is that we distort people's images others and our own so let's let's right here let's recap real quick Let's just pause and, and say, 
What is it that's true about Jesus? What did we just learn about Jesus? What's true about him? That Jesus is what? Yeah, the exact representation of God. He is the image of God. And then what do we learn about ourselves here? That we are prone to what? Distorting images. So let me show you how these two concepts, these two truths land. And it's going to answer why we're going to devote so much time to looking at Jesus through the Gospel of John. So let me do an exercise with you. Just real quick, close your eyes. Close your eyes, clear your mind, breathe. What comes into your mind when I ask you to picture Jesus? Keep your eyes closed. Picture Jesus. What comes into your mind? Is he, is he a, a burly, strapping, handsome man sitting out in a field petting some sheep? Do you picture like one of those 80s glamour shots with a guy with brown flowing hair and a beautiful beard? Blue eyes? Open your eyes real quick. In his book, Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer starts off the book with the single concept, the important phrase. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the single most important thing about us. It's the most important thing about us. How you answer this question can describe one of the most important things about you. So if it is true that Jesus is the exact image of God, and it is also true that you and I are prone to distorting images, then it, wouldn't it be safe to conclude then that, that there's just a slight little chance that you and I might carry distorted notions about Jesus? Just a little sliver possibility? In fact, that's the whole point. That's what I'm arguing this morning. We each possess the capacity to hold distorted images of Jesus. Jesus is not subjective to you or me. Jesus is objectively true, but our perception of him is subjective to us. And you and I have the capacity to possess distorted images of Jesus. In other words, you and I make our own caricatures of Jesus. We do. Whether we exaggerate certain parts or, or understate other parts or, or we just make up or ignore entirely other parts of his image, either way, you and I, we do carry one. We do carry one about him. Uh, David Platt in his book Radical, uh, I read it when it first came out, uh, he, he warned us of this in his book. This is what he said. It's not going to be up on the screen. He says, we can easily give in to the dangerous temptation to take the Jesus of the Bible and twist his image into a version of Jesus that we're more comfortable with. So let me give you an example. We can twist Jesus into an image of a nice, middle-class American Jesus. A, a Jesus who doesn't mind materialism, and who would never, ever in his wildest dreams call us to give away everything that we have. 
Uh, it's a Jesus who would not expect us to forsake our closest relationships so that he receives all of our affections. It's an it's a, it's a easy Jesus who is fine with nominal devotion that does not infringe on our comforts. Or, or because, you know, after all, he loves us just the way we are. It's a Jesus who wants us to be balanced, who wants us to avoid dangerous extremes, or for that matter, wants us to avoid danger altogether. It's a Jesus who brings us comfort and prosperity as we live out our spin on the American dream. And in doing this, you realize what we've done. We've twisted and we've molded and distorted the image of Jesus into our own image. But Jesus is the image of God. So really what we're doing is in molding and reshaping the person and nature of Jesus, we're actually reshaping the nature and person of God in our perspectives, in our understandings, which, which means there could be a way where a church like ours gathers together and raises their hands in worship and praise to a God of their own making rather than the God of the Bible. In fact, this would put us in violation of God's first and second commands. You shall have no other gods before me. Well, we've just made one for ourselves. Which is the second one, right? He said, oh, don't make an idol for yourself. Oh boy, two right off the bat. And you know what this means then, is if, if you and I mold and twist the image of Jesus into one that matches our own preferences, then this obviously leads to incongruent lifestyles with Jesus and with ours, right? They're, they're misaligned priorities and values. Guys, we can see this all over the church in Christianity today. Uh, one pastor uh, I heard about noted that he, he had received a publication, a news publication in the mail one day where the, where the cover of the publication had two headlines on it, one on the left and one on the right. The one on the left side said, church celebrates new $23 million building. And then the article after that just went into extreme detail about how beautiful and fancy the sanctuary was. All the exquisite marble that it had, the stained glass windows. Oh, it went into full detail and celebrated how crazy beautiful this new building was. $23 million. On the other side of the article was an article that was titled, Church Relief Helps Sudanese Refugees. Oh, that sounds great. Let's explore that one. It was a really short article, ironically enough, and it talked about how there were 350,000 refugees in western Sudan who were dying of malnutrition and might not live to the end of the year, going into brief detail about their plight and, and, and suffering. And the last sentence said that the church gave some money to help those Sudanese refugees, to help those who were in peril. Keep in mind, the $23 million new building that the church was celebrating and at the end of this article, it said that the church gave $5,000 to help people dying. Hmm. Uh, do you think that Jesus, uh, who ironically enough spent most of his time with the poor and needy in the streets, would be at the ribbon cutting celebrating, celebration, uh, opening up that new building? Or do you think he'd be there flipping some tables? Guys, we, we misuse Jesus' nature as being gentle and lowly to think, uh, we twist it and we distort it to think that he wants us comfortable. 
Guys, there are people over in in the Himalayas who travel for a week just to get together with their church. They walk by foot and they climb a mountain and they gather in a single bedroom with one light hanging down and no chairs. We think Jesus wants us to be comfortable and we we think that he wants us to live a life of ease and rid us of all of our suffering when really Jesus spent most of his time making people uncomfortable, didn't he? Right, think about the Pharisees. They hated him because of the things that he said. Oh, but they're Pharisees. Well, no. Think about it. The disciples had to leave everything behind in order to follow him. They left their jobs. They left their families. Although they, there's some relational things that happened after that. But, but then we see that Jesus promises his followers that he can't, he's not going to guarantee them a home. He's not going to guarantee them a place to rest. We see Jesus tell another guy that he's got to sell everything that he has, get rid of his idol, and then you can follow Jesus. Oh, boy. We also see that Jesus promises that we're going to suffer trial and tribulation because of him. You think that sounds like a comfortable Jesus? Guys, not only this, we have a whole generation of progressive Christians who are actively redefining what God says as right and as wrong, molding and twisting his nature, exaggerating some parts of his character, totally diminishing other parts in his nature and image in order to make God more acceptable. Or, in other words, in order to make God more agreeable to your preferences. By the way, just a heads up, if you are worshiping a God who never disagrees with you, you're not worshiping God. You're actually worshiping an idolized version of yourself. As we can, we can take Jesus' mercy and welcome and confuse it with safety, meaning we think that we're safe with our struggles and brokenness, and that they're safe with Jesus. When really Jesus came to live, die, rise, and ascend to redeem us out of all of our brokenness and shame and sin. He didn't want us to say that, trust me. Oh, he he loves us as we are and he wants us to come to him as we are. But goodness, he loves us too much to let us stay as we are. Guys, I'm going to keep going. Others of us politicize Jesus, do we not? We think, oh, he'd be a nice Democrat. No, 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 he'd be, a, he'd be a good Republican because he has these values. No, some of us even think that Jesus, when he comes riding back, he's gonna be riding on the American eagle, robed in the American flag, and that trumpet tune's gonna be playing the star-spangled banner. He's gonna destroy all of America's enemies, and he's gonna establish the United States of America as his new kingdom on earth. Worst of all, Worst of all, many of us distort Jesus by thinking that when he came and did what he did and said what he said, that he just came to be a convenient addition onto your lives. When in all reality, Jesus came to be the all-consuming addiction of your life. To be the highest affection of your heart. that you would die and that he would live through you in this world. Brothers and sisters, as the pastor of a church, I am terrified at the slightest possibility of us being a church that follows our own self-modified version of Jesus on our way to hell. And, and I believe that I have a responsibility and a mandate from God before God 
to invite us into faithfully following the Jesus of the Bible, the objective, real Jesus. Guys, I've got to tell you, uh, the past two years, I have studied, not just read, but I have studied all four Gospels through and through. And when you talk about study, you got to know, when I study, I only study like half half a verse. That's all I'm preaching on today, really. So talking about a really long time and really in depth, I've studied all four gospels in the last two years because I so desperately want to make sure that all of my thoughts and all of my beliefs about this Jesus aren't my own twistings and aren't my own distortions of a Jesus that I've made with my own hands. No, guys, in a culture that is actively seeking to redefine Jesus in a world full of people who are really good at distorting images... I want to be following the real Jesus. And I want us to be following the real Jesus. Guys, the the Apostle John wrote in his gospel at the end why he wrote the book. He said, but these signs, this book, it's written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is why we're going to spend so many weeks studying the person of Jesus in this gospel of John because because John's aim is to help us believe Jesus, not make our own Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the exact image of God and we don't change him We're not the potter with him as the clay. My goodness, we don't mold him into our image. No, we either take him or leave him. No, but we, in taking him, offer ourselves to him. And we're the ones who say, I'm the clay, you're the potter. Mold me and change me. Use me and fill me. We're the ones who hold ourselves with an open hand as we approach Jesus and we say, show me your glory, God. Show us who you are. Because it's this very thing that's embodied in the phrase semper reformanda. Can you say that with me? One, two, three. Semper reformanda. It means always reforming. That doesn't mean that we just change for change's sake. That's not what's going on here. This is taking the humility, having the humility to say, man, I, I can really distort images of other people. There might be some things that I don't have right. God, whatever's wrong, change it. Reform it. That's what this series is meant to be. It's meant to be an open hand invitation for you to come and either discover for the first time or rediscover again the real Jesus. In other words, this sermon series is meant to be us inviting in Jesus. And letting him say, I am. Not us saying, well, he is this. And then presenting some distorted image that we've made up of our own. So are you ready? We hope this message helps you multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit waynesboroughfm.com.